through 37. Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. Hear the word of the Lord fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we call upon you. We thank you for your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And so you have promised you are in our midst. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would mightily work in our hearts through your word, as it is proclaimed. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our exalted and glorious King. Amen. It's very good to be among you again this afternoon. I have a, a, a very high bar has been set for me. Your emeritus pastor, David, told me before the service that last week he heard a sermon from John Knox uh, I, 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 so, yeah, I'll try my best, but uh, um, it's good to be here with you this evening. You may have noticed a close, parable, uh, close parallel between our text of this evening at the end of Acts 4 and the end of Acts 2, very similar in fact, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you might think, hey, I, didn't I just read that? And in a way, you, you have. At the end of Acts 2, remember how Luke gives a description of what the church looked like immediately after Pentecost. He describes there the, the mighty effect of, the, of, of Pentecost, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the worship and life of the early church. And here at the end of Acts 4, Luke gives us a a more detailed description of one aspect of the life of the early church. He focuses on how these early Christians were putting their unity and fellowship into practice. In both cases, both at the end of Acts 2 and also here at the end of Acts 4, Luke makes very clear that this is a result of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And notice what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and so we should also expect that to happen among us, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto us too, that's his promise to us, is that, notice what it says in verse 33, with with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to what? 
to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. You see, that is the sort of thing that we should expect to be happening still among us today. Great power. We should expect that we as the people of God upon whom the Spirit has been poured out are giving testimony, are giving our testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead still today because He's still alive. He's still reigning with power and great grace is upon us all. Remember what happened after the early believers prayed to God upon Peter and John's release from, from custody? We read about that just before our text in verse 31. Notice what we're told there. And when they prayed, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This evening, I want to show you from God's Word how the the Spirit-filled community learns a refreshingly new way of handling possessions. The Spirit-filled community, that that is you and me, Church of Christ, that is witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we bear witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the the refreshingly new way that we handle our possessions. The first thing that we consider is the refreshing Spirit poured out. This pouring out of the Spirit is evident in the unity of the believers. Luke tells us in verse 32, those who believed were of one heart and soul. And this can be nothing else than than the work of the Holy Spirit who was just poured out. They were just filled with the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, those who believed were of one heart and soul. Remember what Paul says later in Ephesians 4 when 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 he's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. He says, there is one body and one spirit. Indeed, the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who brings unity to the one body of Christ. The Holy Spirit brings unity to the one body of Christ, and that is how, just think about that, how, that, is how the resu- that is how we bear witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is one, and His body is one. Think about what happens before an orchestra performs at a concert, at least a good orchestra, under the direction of a gifted conductor. The first violinist stands up at the direction of the conductor and plays a note on her violin. And all the players check to make sure that their instrument is tuned to that one instrument. When they start playing, they're, they're able to make one moving, powerful, harmonious sound. And they can make that glorious, harmonious sound because they're all tuned to the same instrument. And see, that's how it is in the church 
where the Spirit has been poured out. The believers are one in heart and soul, and that, that is a miracle, isn't it? They're all tuned to each other because they are in tune with the same Spirit. Yes, that is a miracle if we just look around at each other. We're all different people, different characters. Some of us don't even know each other, but yet we're one in spirit. And in this way, the, the, the resurrection of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is evident among us. There's evidence of Jesus living, of Jesus risen among us. It's his work. We're one in heart and soul. See, this is how we come to unity. Even me as one who comes in from the outside, I know that I'm one in heart and mind with you because of the Spirit. I don't need to feel like a stranger here, nor does anyone else who, who is a follower of Jesus. This is how we come to unity, by listening closely to the Holy Spirit. Plays the note that we're all supposed to tune to. There is one Spirit, and therefore there is one body. We all try to tune our instruments on our own, without listening to the Spirit. We'll be out of tune with one another. If we all just live separate lives and never get together on Sundays to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to be out of tune with each other. That will also happen if we begin to tuning our instruments to anyone else besides the Holy Spirit. really is quite remarkable, isn't it, that these, these early believers were one in heart and mind. It's remarkable in the first place because there were so many of them. 5,000, we're told in verse 4. 5,000, and they were one in heart and mind. This could be nothing else but a witness to the resurrection of the one Lord Jesus. And their unity is remarkable for another reason. They were all from different cultures, from many different parts of the world. We're told that earlier in Acts. They had come from all over the place. And they even spoke many different languages. They couldn't even sometimes communicate with each other. They wore different styles of clothing. They ate different kinds of food. They had different ethnic customs. And then on top of that, each had their own character, each had their own quirks, and yet they were one in heart and mind. They didn't display the inflexible attitude of those who think that everyone has to do and and think the same things in the same way, follow the same customs in order to be one. Not at all. The body of Christ finds unity in diversity. These 5,000 different people were all different from one another, yet they were one 
in Christ their risen Savior. We have every reason, you see, to celebrate and enjoy the diversity that we have in the body of Christ. To praise the Holy Spirit for how, how He makes it possible for so many different people. Each of us with our own characters, each, each of us with our own quirks, with our own flaws, each of us with our own gifts and personalities and family backgrounds and, and nationalities. To be one. This is another, not, nothing other than the work of the Holy Spirit and testimony to the resurrection of the living Lord Jesus. He brings us into powerful, harmonious unity with one another by tuning each one of us to himself. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, and as Scott introduced the reading this evening, it's, it's obviously one that you're very familiar with since, there's a, since you're focusing on it in church right now and in, in the preaching. Remember what Paul says there in, in Philippians 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Oh, we need to hear this. In an age where there is so much division, so much division, church is one place where we can be of one mind. Or should I say, where we are of one mind as we listen to the Spirit and as we follow Jesus who is one Lord and as we confess the one faith. This oneness in heart and mind, however, goes much further than just agreeing with each other. Because, yeah, it's true. We, we, all have, we, we still have our own opinions about certain things. We don't agree about everything. But we agree with the Spirit. That is where we have our unity. But again, it goes much, much further than just agreeing with each other. It also means looking out for each other. Looking after each other. Oneness of heart and mind includes regarding the needs and, and burdens of fellow believers as our own. Where the refreshing spirit is poured out, there are refreshing changes brought, brought about. Spirit-filled community learns a radically, refreshingly new way of handling their possessions. As Luke, Luke says in verse 32, no one, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And some people have used this text to support, as you can predict, communist ideology. According to the utopian idea, ideal espoused by communism, there is no such thing as private property. Well, there's no indication here that the apostles required everyone to surrender their own private property. 
In the first place, it's clear from our text that many believers continue to own property and real estate, lands and homes. They didn't. They wouldn't be able to sell them and give to the poor. In fact, Christians would often gather in the homes of believers. They didn't, have, they didn't own church buildings. They met in, in each other's homes. And some of them were, were big homes that could host a large congregation. Selling of property and real estate then was entirely voluntary. One translation gets at the sense when it, when it translates, from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them. Secondly, notice that verse 36 doesn't say that Joseph, who's given as an example of this, doesn't say that Joseph sold all his property. Notice that it says that he sold a field that belonged to him. The unspoken implication is that he had more fields and property and, and, and probably homes. It's clear, however, that he didn't sell his field because he was told to, but because he chose to. We might describe the the difference between communism and Christendom this way. The maxim of communism is, what's yours is everyone's. Whereas the maxim of Christendom is, what's mine is yours. Now, people have offered different suggestions of where the early church learned this idea of generosity and sharing. Some people have suggested that the church was putting into practice the Greek ideals of Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle, very smart men. According to Pythagoras, all property is public. Among friends, everything is common, Pythagoras stated. This was also the vision that Plato had of his utopian republic. And according to Aristotle, true friends hold everything in common. If you look at how the ideals of these Greek philosophers worked out in practice, though, you'll see how different they were from what we see here in the early church. In Greek society, friendship and sharing of this sort, was based on reciprocity among equals. It was transactional. In other words, you would only share with those who would share something with you in return. You'd only give to those who have something to give back to you. They even said that about the gods. I give to God that God may give. In other words... You'd only give to those who had something to give back to you. You'd only invite someone to your parties if you could be assured that they would invite you to theirs. How radically different this is from what we read here in Acts. What the early Christians were practicing. These early Christians were, were giving and sharing without expecting anything in return. The rich were selling things and giving away their money to the poor without any thought of repayment. 
far from imitating Greek conventions then, the early Christians were, were putting into practice a radically new and refreshing way of handling possessions. The sort of generosity of the rich towards the poor was actually ridiculed by the pagans. Now others have suggested that, that the early Christian church was imitating the Jewish, Jewish sect of the Essenes, whom Josephus described as imitating these Greek philosophical ideals. The Essenes lived in, in communes, much like Hutterites and Mennonites in our day, or like the Mormon sect in, in Bountiful B.C., They surrendered and and shared all their property and possessions. But in practice, of course, if you know anything about these communities, the shared property is actually in the hands of the most powerful and influential in that community. So we know the name of, of that most influential guy in that Mormon commune in Bountiful, B.C. He was in the news lots. And everyone else living on the commune becomes completely dependent upon one or a few leaders who have everything and everyone under their control. This isn't the picture that we see in Acts. Nothing like it. Was this radically new way of sharing possession simply an invention of the apostles then? Not at all, actually. They had actually learned this from the Old Testament. They were in tune with the Spirit. The Spirit of the prophets and, and, and the Old Testament. Moses and the Psalms. They had learned from the Old Testament this way of living as taught and modeled to them by Jesus Himself who not only opened the Scriptures to them, but but who lived those Old Testament Scriptures. Remember what Jesus had announced as His agenda for the people of God right at the beginning of His earthly ministry? He went straight to the Old Testament. That's where His ministry started. You, you, You could call that His ordination, His installation sermon. What was that sermon? It was Isaiah 61, which we read. And what was Jesus' agenda for his ministry and for the New Testament church? The agenda was jubilee. The jubilee as described by Isaiah. Remember Jesus read it that Sabbath at the beginning of his earthly ministry. The first words that are recorded that Jesus spoke. At the beginning of his ministry, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. We read in Luke 4. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus' ministry was all about. 
drawing together the covenant community of God where all are satisfied, where no one is left poor and needy. Do you want testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see it in the church and how people take care of their poor and their needy. You see it in the love of the saints to the least. That's where you see the living Lord Jesus. That's where you see the greatest testimony to His resurrection. His body at work. Literally. And, and you see, this is how the apostles saw themselves and how they taught the early believers to see themselves. They saw themselves as that new community. That new covenant community, new but, but in a way old, the, the community that God had, had been gathering since the beginning of time. That new covenant community come to its fullness in Jesus. In whom all God's covenant promises were coming to fruition. Remarkable, miraculous, beautiful Astounding ways that the world had never seen. Remember what God had decreed to His people in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 15. There will be no poor among you. Notice, notice how, how God says it there through Moses. It's a decree. There will be no poor people among you. It's a fact. God doesn't even say, make sure there are no poor among you. He's, he declares it. There will be no poor among you. As long as I am your God. And Jesus continues with that promise, with that decree. There will be no poor among you. That's what Jesus declares to you now, to me now. There will be no poor among you. If there's anyone who's poor here, you're actually not poor because you're in the covenant community where all the blessings of Christ flow to you. And where your brothers and sisters are going to make sure that you're never in need. And so that what David says, remember in one of the Psalms, I've never seen a God-fearer begging for bread. That's a fact. It's not just because David was naive and hadn't seen much of the world. It was a fact. God wanted the Israelites to see their land not as their own private possession, but as something that that they held in trust for Him who owned it all. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The car you drive home tonight is God's. It's the Lord's. It's not yours. He holds the title to your house that you're driving to tonight, even if you're renting it. He owns the 300 square feet that you occupy or the 5,000 square feet. It's His. This radically new and refreshing way of handling possessions, something as old as the Bible itself. And like I mentioned earlier, it's something that God's people, the apostles, had learned from Jesus. 
This group of Jesus' apostles and disciples was, was showing they were that true covenant community where no one is left being needy, where there's total forgiveness of debts. They had heard Jesus say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Remember the context here. The temple establishment was still very upset with the apostles. They didn't like what the apostles were doing, the miracles they were doing, the sermons they were preaching, because they realized that the influence of the temple establishment was crumbling. Their influence was crumbling. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple establishment realized that if if what the apostles taught about Jesus was true, they would lose their positions of privilege and power. And that was exactly the point. That was exactly what God wanted. By exercising this, this refreshingly new approach to possessions, the apostles and disciples of Jesus were were once again upstaging the old temple community. They were showing that they were the real people of God, the people among whom God was living through the risen Jesus. What about us? What about you and me? What we do with our possessions, you see shows what kind of community we are as Church of Jesus Christ. Are we telling the truth about Jesus? That's what's on the line here. The truth about Jesus. That's what's on the line here. The testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. Is Jesus really risen? And is there evidence, is there proof among us? People see, when they look at us, how we spend, how we give, how we share, Or fail to? What are we saying about Jesus? And is the good news about his resurrection getting out? Or are we standing in the way of it? There's another important lesson in our text. Notice what we read in verses 34 and 35. Those who sold their lands or houses brought the money from the sales to the apostles and it was distributed to each as any had need. In other words, the rich would sell land or houses when they saw a need. And the apostles would distribute the money according to the need. So it's not like the deacons only give when they have money in the pot. No, the congregation, when they see a need, they give. They give more. When the deacons say there are more needs to fill, we, we come, we give more. To the point of feeling it pinch, feeling it, feeling the pain of giving that away. Maybe selling that car that we don't really need, or or that vacation home, or 
whatever. The spirit-filled community learns a refreshingly new way of handling possessions. Refreshing. Spirit is poured out. There's evidence because refreshing change is brought about. Are you evidence of that change? Has that change happened in you, in me? Next week, we'll, we'll look at the refreshing example lived out in the person of Joseph. In the meantime, may the Spirit be working so powerfully in us that we ourselves become examples like Joseph. Let us pray. The earth is yours, O Lord, and everything in it. There's nothing that we have that really belongs to us. There's nothing of which we can say, that's, that's mine. It's mine. It's not. It's yours. And so we offer everything we have. Our houses, our properties, our investments, our automobiles, our businesses, Yes, even our debts, we offer them all to you and we say, here, Lord, it's yours. Do with it what you will. We realize that all good is found in you alone. There is no good apart from you. And so we thank you for every good and perfect gift which you have given, especially your spirit whom you have poured out And the testimony of Jesus, your Son, risen and living at your right hand. O Lord, may our lives this week preach the truth that Jesus is risen. May that happen without us having to say a word. In Jesus' name, amen.